Welcome to Life After CISO, where we'll talk about your next play as a successful technology executive and steps you can take now to prepare for the journey. Welcome back to Life After CISO. And this episode, I have Casey Ellis joining me to talk about bug bounties and uh, quite a bit more. Casey, why don't you uh, say hello? Thanks for having me on, Jerry. Uh, yeah, so my name is Casey Ellis. I'm the founder, chairman, and CTO of BugCrowd. Uh, I'm the co-founder of the Disclose.io vulnerability standardization project. Um, I've done advisory into you know federal governments and corporations all around the world on how to better work with hackers to be a part of you know their cybersecurity defenses. And as you can probably hear, I'm not originally from around these parts. I'm, I'm based in San Francisco, but originally from Sydney, Australia. A different corner of the metaverse that you're actually from. Indeed, indeed, down on the upside. <laughs> Whatever that means these yep. days. Well, um, Casey and I have uh, known each other for quite a while. I think we met over dinner at, a, at an RSA conference years ago. Kind of one of those, we should probably be having dinner with people and we somehow ended up in the same place, but just actually enjoyed it. Yeah, so that was good. Uh, we've stayed in touch without a doubt. We work together in, um, I mean, we, we were commercially in, engaged, right? So at my last company, we used Bug Crowd pretty thoroughly in bug bounties. That was awesome. Good job. Thank you, sir. What led me to reach out to you most recently was this whole Uber incident and some of the things that I heard about mm. bug bounties knocking on from that. So to set the stage, I mean, I think my audience is probably 60% people who are sick of hearing about Joe Sullivan and the Uber trial and 40% people who have <laughs> sure. no idea what I'm talking about. Right, So that can be a bit of a challenge. So the quick take on it is that uh, there was just a case and, and Joe Sullivan was just convicted a little over a week ago on a couple of charges. But the, the, um, the allegations and, and what the court bore out was that there was an extortion attempt. Someone reached out to Uber and said, hey, we've got a whole ton of your data here and we want $100,000 to keep it quiet. And I'm going to oversimplify, but you can test that and say that... Sure. Whoever it may be, Joe and others, thought, well, you know what? This is the only person who has it. It's not out in the public realm. We feel confident that we're willing to trust this guy. I mean, if he tells us, he's never going to give it to anyone if we give him this money. So let's root it through our, our bug bounty program and pay a $100,000 bounty and then say that it's therefore subject to all of the terms that make us comfortable with real legitimate researchers reporting things and not having to report them. And also makes it not a breach, quote unquote. Sure. In the process, sure. yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, that's one of my questions for you today is because you've had to deal with this, I could tell already. Oh, yeah. So what, what came out of that, you know, it was a lot of discussions about whether he was a scapegoat or whether he, he was unethical and or where on the spectrum it was and all of that. Enough people are talking about that. But what I noticed that made me reach out to you is that I was reaching out to a friend. Um, I was actually going to speak to their company and kind of give a you know different view of security. And I asked, you know, do you do bug bounties, by the way? Because I always preach that and I want to see how it's going to be received. And he said, no, we don't. And, um, you know, uh, we don't really see the point because we, we have a lot of good risk identification through some mature processes. But then he said, and we, we certainly aren't going to anytime soon after this Uber thing. Right. And, and that kind of <laughs> took me for a loop there. Have you, do you, are you feeling any flack in the bug bounty world? Flack is not necessarily how I describe yeah. it. Um, you know what, what I've what I've experienced and encountered, and and frankly, this is not a new thing. I just think the intensity uh, of it and the ob obviousness of it's kind of increased um, since you know Joe Joe went to uh, to court originally, and especially since the uh, the verdict came back. You know, confusion around like what is the role of of paying researchers for for things they discover on the internet to have a security consequence? Like, is there a difference between that and and 
you know, buying silence or paying for extortion yeah. or or whatever else. And, you know, to me, that's actually a really positive conversation to be having because, you know, from from my perspective, like the key difference is really in the timing, right? Like if there's, <laughs> if there's you know, exfiltration or theft of data and then that's followed up by, hey, give us some money and, and we'll give it back to you or, you know, we've found a vulnerability like down on the kind of the big bounty end of the spectrum. Um, we found a vulnerability. If you pay us some money, we'll tell you where it is, all those sorts of things. To me, they look a lot more like extortion because the, mm-hmm. the event that, you know, is potentially criminal actually precedes the request yeah. for, for proceeds from from the threat actor. Um, in the case of a bug bounty, what what the company does is goes out and basically lays out a very clear and explicit set of expectations. Like if you find these types of issues, if you're the first person to find it, you know, if you're staying within our guardrails with respect to safe harbor and, and how you treat user data, not disrupting our systems, all those different things, then we will pay you for, for for that information because that information to us is valuable. Right? Yeah. So, you know, the challenge with it is that like you, you're baking both cakes with like roughly the same ingredients. You've got someone who knows how to break computers. You've got, you know, money changing hands. You've got like a vulnerability that allows, you know, exploitation of, of, of an organization. Those two things are the same. Uh, those things rather, those ingredients are the same in both cases. It's just the sequencing and, and whether or not an organization is actually proactive about that or if they're doing it reactively. That's, yeah. that's kind of the main difference. So, you know, back to your question, it's not so much, oh, I'm sketchy on bug bounties because it looks a bit like extortion. It's more like, what is the difference? Mm-hmm. And like my favorite one is when people come to me and, you know, there's a presumption that, um, that a bug bounty is basically just an extortion payment. It's like, no, I can actually explain to you why that's not that's not accurate in a way that, you know, lawyers agree with at this point in time. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you in, in close proximity to the conversation that I just described, I had another one where I was out in an event and I met a lot of new security practitioners for the first time from companies that were, I didn't really work with a lot in the past. Like I, I was financial services, so I knew a lot of those programs, but this was outside of there. And bug bounties mm-hmm. came up and I was surprised there were some people that did not run bug bounties. And I know that sounds crazy, uh, but I said, I, you know, and just kind of put my foot in my mouth. I was kind of embarrassed after I said it out loud. But I said, oh, I could never trust anyone's program to be secure if they didn't have a bug bounty program. And I believe that. I, I really feel that. Like, if I'm responsible for really figuring out if a program's secure or not, they have to run a bug bounty program to me. And I'm speaking from just experience and using a lot of sources of risk identification in parallel, right? Red teaming, yep. good stuff too. You know, high quality red teaming boring old pen test, <laughs> regulatory examinations, right? Start on the more narrative side of it, Vuln scanners, attack service management, you can just rattle it off forever. And the thing about bug bounties to me was that when, you, so we always used to tag, not uh, we'd ultimately build an urgency around any finding, any risk, but we would also tag the reported urgency so that if we downgrade mm-hmm. something, we can flag that and double check it so we, we don't get hit later, right? Especially if the reporting yeah. source is like a regulatory agency and we say, ah, they missed contacts, we're going to put a delta here. We, we can do that, but yep. we wanted to flag it so we can explain it proactively. So bug bounties, we never had to downgrade. You know, P1 from bug bounty is almost always a P1, right? Yeah, no, I think that was that was one of the, uh, that was one of the phenomena that we noticed. You know, I've, I've been doing bug crowd now since... 2012 was when we started working on it. That was our first program. So, you know, we didn't invent the idea of phone disclosure or, or, or bug bounty. There was a lot of prior art around that aspect of it. But the idea of basically being in the middle and, and you know, kind of the original goal was to connect as much of the latent potential that exists in, in the security research community mm-hmm. with as much of the 
the you know ability to like require that that creativity and that input on the defender side as we possibly could and you know bug bounty back in 2012 2013 was the easiest way to explain to people that hackers aren't necessarily evil they can be helpful yeah um and that the whole thing kind of got a tailwind and here we are 10 years later sure one of the big things that came out quite quickly was almost exactly what you're talking about like it's it's incredibly effective at um you know, identification of risk uh, in, in in the form of vulnerabilities or in the form of you know design any patterns, all those different things that have been missed by by traditional. Yeah, you know, it's it's the, the quirky stuff. Oftentimes, is what falls out that's quite high impact because um, oftentimes you need a, a certain yeah. point of view on technology or even a certain point of view around exploitation. It's almost like a dating you know game in a sense. It's yeah. like you're connecting the right way to view attacking your system with the problem that's there. If you can make that match. Then, then you discover, you know, what's wrong. The output of that is is this sense of, oh, holy crap, that came in from the outside. Like, there's there's this sense of, you know, the boogeyman being real. I think that that that's quite a bit different when you receive you know a vulnerability report from someone halfway across the world, because all of a sudden, as a defender, you're thinking, well, yeah, they seem friendly. And, and helpful, but like, what's the next door neighbor like? Like, we've just demonstrated that from the outside, with no context to the inside of this business, it's possible to to create this sort of impact. Like, okay, we should probably think about security in a different way. Yeah, I, I would call that the um, the holiday end vantage point, right? We actually put our all of our findings on this heat map for for red team stuff, especially where the y axis was, mm-hmm. you know, how far they were able to get. But we did a lot of assumed breach, so we used the x axis to show how much help they got. And the far right was right. called Holiday Inn, meaning they could do this last night from a Holiday Inn with nobody helping them at yeah. all. And the far yeah, yeah, left was like, you yeah. give them root, right? And you can imagine the spectrum too. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, to, to, you know, echoing your point, uh, you know, people call, um, are, are thinking a lot about artificial intelligence for automating pen testing and red teaming. And to me, bounties was just like intelligence. Like you didn't even need to be artificial. You actually had a human thinking yeah. a little bit. And that creativity and the little bits like like subdomain enumeration, right? Tools can brute force. That might actually be a problem in itself. But an actual researcher or hacker would say, oh, they're in the business of metals. Let me try brass.subdomain or whatever it may be. Just those little silly mental shortcuts that humans make. And then they start scoring. So... Talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, you know, that, that attitude that I got that said, we're getting enough from everything else. Have you, in your experience, when you see companies on board, in particular sophisticated, ostensibly sophisticated programs on board, my experience has always been, and, and by the way, I've done it a lot because we did M&A and onboarded them, so it wasn't just our own program, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And my experience is that anybody who's new to a bug bounty program has a, a huge initial wave of exciting... Yep. P1 Almost without file. Yep. <laughs> critical vulnerabilities that they have to quickly work down. Is that always the case or are many companies coming in and clean? No, it's almost always the case. I actually refer to that as clearing assurance debt as an organization. Um, so there's there's this idea, you know, we, we notice this as a trend um, to the point where, you know, internally within Bug Crowd, we call it the, the oh crap moment because it's it's that reliable. Like, you know, when, when you start to apply this kind of approach to, to vulnerability discovery uh, and compare it to what's been done historically, there's always this pretty huge gap in its ability to find things that, that basically is assurance debt. It's, it's yeah. this idea of like, we didn't know it was there because we didn't have the ability to look at it in this yeah. sort of way. 
and it's it's a pretty reliable phenomena. It's interesting in that sense because most of the time organizations, to your point before around sophistication, nine times out of 10, it's actually less of a thing today. You know, I, th I think organizations are getting a better grip around the idea that like humans you know, are responsible for deploying all of this stuff and writing code and doing all these different things and humans are, are error prone. Therefore, there yeah. will be vulnerabilities. That's just a, it's a physics issue. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think people are kind of further along in, in understanding that at the very least, if not accepting it. Um, but early on, it was always, oh, holy crap. Like, you know, we, we've oh, been no, pen yeah. testing this thing for 10 years and it came back clean the entire time. And now you're saying there's, there's issues. You know, we've, we've had one of my favorite ones was a XXE on a, on a very like high up in the Alexa ranking website. Um, and this is a property that had been tested quarterly for, you know, 10 or 12 years. And um, literally, it was a, a XML uh, entity injection, uh, you know, exploit that actually allowed the uh, the tester to, you know, theoretically pivot into the web farm backend, and from there into all sorts of different places. So it's like it's a holiday in type of type of oh, yeah. issue, and it didn't get found because you know it, it wasn't because the pen testing that had been done on it previously was necessarily bad. It's just because they hadn't connected the right way of thinking with that particular you know chain required to to exploit that issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I like to describe it a lot where I say pen tests, and I say it as having done pen tests 20 years ago, but the pen test is always kind of the same blueprint and you kind of have a feature finding, right? Like you kind of reach, reach this crescendo and you're testing everything. Oh, we haven't found anything. We haven't found anything. And if you've been doing that for two weeks on a, you know, a, a, a you know, $20,000 engagement, then at some point if you start thinking, wow, we really need to find something. It's going to look weak. And then you finally do. And it's, it's amazing. And it's your feature mm. finding. And you may make a video of it these days. Then we might make a screenshot mm. of it. And put a cool soundtrack on there and do a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then you pad it out with, with all the port scan results, basically, but with, you know, low fidelity things. And you have yourself a report and you're done. You can wrap up the engagement, go to the next client. Whereas on the bounties to me, it was every single person looking for the feature finding every time. Yeah. including the videos and the screenshots. Yeah, no, 100%. I think, yeah, I mean, you're talking about pen testing, you know, at this point in time, I think a lot of what the market does as a pen test is probably what we used to refer to as a vulnerability assessment. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's less about, you know, enumerating risks and impacts. It's more about enumerating vulnerabilities, which, you know, when, yeah, when I was back doing yeah. that sort of thing is, is kind of one step back. And it kind of implies that you're feeding a vulnerability management process instead of a, a risk management and a prioritization process yeah, as well. So there's a bunch of that, like that's a, that's a rant I could go on for a long time, but yeah. with, with really what, what bounty and, and crowdsourcing is best at is, is mimicking the capability of the adversary ultimately. Like when you think about, you know, what the bad guys in aggregate have at their disposal. It's lots of different skill sets, lots of different, you know, reasons to try to get in and do their thing and lots of different motivations for doing that. Um, they're not constrained by the intelligence of, of any one single individual or the, you know, the number of hours per day they're being paid. So, you know, when you think about like trying to outsmart that on a continuous basis, that was really the thing that was keeping me up at night when I when I had the idea for bug crowd, it's like, how do we level that playing field? Because the way that we're doing it right now, the math is wrong, ultimately. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, you know, a lot of my audience is um, kind of from the governance angle. So to them, you know, they may never thought about bug bounties at all, and so this will be pretty interesting. But sure. I think to that point, especially if you're a, a board director or if you're doing due diligence, right, and you're, you're just trying to, from afar, get a beat, or is this program strong or not, psychologically, you know, as you were talking about and confirming my my expectation that there's a big debt for a lot of 
companies when they onboard. My immediate kind of commercial business thought was, oh, Casey, why don't you tell everybody if, if you don't find any P1s or a bunch of them that you have your money back or something like that. And then I immediately thought, like, that works if you assume that everybody really wants to find all the problems. Yeah. And, and boards may and should assume that. They should assume a risk management program has that goal. But in my experience... But in reality, people, that's not always true. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people um, would rather not hear about it. So you've noticed that as well. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I noticed that basically my, my kind of career arc you know, out of high school into pen testing for a period of time. Then I got went across into solutions architecture and sales. Before I got it in my head, I wanted to do the entrepreneur thing. And and actually the company that I was running prior to Bug Crowd, um, where I started getting annoyed uh, enough to, you know, go off and do a startup, was, <laughs> was basically a, a pen test company. And I observed it all the way back then. You know what I mean? I, I think there is, like, there's practical legal issues that I think today are actually less of a defense than they used to be back then around the difference between due diligence and due care. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, we haven't fixed a vulnerability because we just didn't know it was there. Um, yeah. That's been a, a plausible, historically, that's been a plausible legal defense. And actually, you know, the security person in me hates that that excuse. But if I put the business hat on and think about it through like the lens of a bush lawyer, I can actually understand why that's a thing. Um, I think today, like the cadence of breaches, like the, the diversity and the level of act, of activity coming out of you know this just broadening set of threat actors that are out there, it's kind of making that less relevant now than it used to be. Um, and I think as well, CISOs are realizing that like we have to prioritize from a from an impact and a risk standpoint, otherwise we're screwed. There's just too much yeah. to do. So like this whole idea of getting, you know, a, a pen test report that doesn't really tell you anything you didn't already know, but passes the thud test. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like the days of that being seen as an acceptable approach are, are limited. It'll kick around forever still, but um, I can definitely see people pivoting towards more of a focus on impact. Yeah, yeah I mean, more than anything, I think that if you're hiring or building a security team or, or, or um, hiring a security leader or if you're an oversight and you're trying to do risk oversight at the board level and you're trying to ensure that things aren't going to happen here, you have to, you can, there's no way you can tolerate learning that leadership is saying, yeah, there's probably a whole lot of problems, but look, we're not going to look because then we're pregnant with them when there's a problem. I don't see how that's an acceptable stance. I mean, the reality is I think it's still you know, strictly speaking is acceptable, but you look at, you know, the uh, the proposed SEC rule changes that came out, you know, mm-hmm. a month or two ago around um, companies needing to report the level of cybersecurity expertise on their board. Mm-hmm. Like you've got, you know, at this point in time, public markets starting to recognize that, yeah, no, we actually need to do this well because there's there's a stockholder, a shareholder downside yeah. to, to not doing it. So to me, you know, in aggregate, there's... There's pressure coming top down. I mean, even when you talk about you know vulnerability disco- disclosure programs, which are to mm-hmm. me the parent of bug bounty programs, it's when you're just listening to feedback from the outside world but not necessarily paying for it. Um, you know that got rolled into NIST 853R5 like last year, I think. Um, you know the CISA DHS did uh, binding operational directive 2001 to basically mandate running VDP across all of federal civilian in the US. You know, similar things are happening in EMEA and, and Asia Pacific as well. So this whole idea of like, hey, like you're vulnerable, like just accept the fact that that's true and like let's talk about what you're doing about it um, yeah. and, and what you're doing to improve. You know, it's 
like moving forward from that starting point of ostrich risk management, I, I call it in terms of how I think historically a lot of a lot of you know companies even not just to call the CISO out, I think just organizations in general have thought about this. Oh, certainly. It's like maybe if we just ignore it, it'll be fine. Um, I think that's you know the days of that sort of thinking are numbered as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, one other argument I've heard before, and I feel this, I hate doing whack-a-mole things, right? I hate doing anything that's never going to end. I'm always trying to automate even my own life, right? And so, I, you know, I think some people look at it as, well, you're just going to give me this fire hose of vulnerabilities and I'm going to keep on patching or they think they're going to patch. It's, it's never a patch. I mean, it is 13% of the time, but it's usually a configuration error, logic code. That's another thing, the misconception, everything is just about a patch. Mm. But in any event, nobody wants to just remediate, remediate, remediate. But the thing that I, I think people lose sight of is that, y- yes, you do want to identify themes, right? That's where you get more bang for the buck. Yeah. But 100%. you can only identify themes with volume. And so if you have 100 findings, then you could say, oh, we have a consistent theme and input validation or something like that. So there actually is more of a macro level benefit you could get about at really specific targeted testing. Well, and ideally that volume's tied to real impact as well, because you, you could, you know, you could do a a, a vulner, vulnerability assessment or a you know a cheap and cheerful pen test and, and get back that you've got like a a deprecated cipher across a hundred thousand different servers or whatever yeah. else. It's like great, okay, that's useful to know. We should probably clean that up at some point. But in reality, that's probably not gonna cause like a material impact. Um yeah, we'll get around to that once we've fixed everything else. Do you know what I mean? So, so the ability to say, you know, this is—I mean, we we partnered up with Secure Code Warrior. Gosh, when was that? Probably three or four years ago. Um, after we actually observed, you know, bug crowd customers using feedback from the crowd in that that exact way that you're describing. It's like, oh, okay, we've got, you know, we've got a particular issue. We seem to see a trend around a particular vulnerability class. You know, class, even out of this yeah. particular department, right? Um, you, you can even go down to the point where you're inferring weaknesses in, your, in the frameworks that you're using. Like if, you, if you've tried to mitigate reflected XSS in, in, in your, your, you know, your web code, but it's still popping out everywhere, then okay, your framework probably has an issue and you can yeah. go back and look at that. So yeah, exactly. I think you know, being able to t- interpret this and get beyond whack-a-mole and fixing kind of point risk as it comes in and starting to you know, figure out what you can do systemically to address the root cause. That's the goal state, I think, for everyone. Um, I don't know that a lot of companies are actually there, but you know, setting that as a North Star, I think, is a, is a really good thing. Being such a, a bounty program fan, I've been doing some consulting with companies and the general idea is to help stand up, like for a mid-sized company, a cyber program, right? And picture that I could set the stage, a company that's not a cyber company at all, they suddenly get a check and they're supposed to go to market and they successfully go down that path and load up the funnel and then they find that deals are not getting closed because of risk. They need a SOC yeah. 2 and they, they suddenly need a program. So they haven't had a breach yet, right? That kind of thing. And, you know, with my muscle memory, I do a lot on governance and a charter and all that kind of stuff and then establishing a risk register. Like I think you need a source agnostic register that's empty at, at first, but just getting there alone is massive and then yeah. start feeding it. And so then I'm telling them all, like, you're not doing anything until you have a bug bounty program. You have to have a bug bounty program. Let's feed the registry, get a bug bounty program. I'm not comfortable here. You shouldn't be comfortable and on. And yeah, we run out of psychological hurdles we just talked about. But is it unaffordable for a small company like that? 
how small can can someone be? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I, I think you know this is where probably just calling out how we've divvied out what we do is useful because it, it'll disambiguate what we're talking about a little bit here. Vulnerability disclosure programs, which I just mentioned, that's essentially going out to the open internet, you know, creating an intake point. So you've got, you know, through a platform, through, you know, an email inbox, it can be all sorts of things. Bug Crowd provides that and we do triage and all those different things as well. But we're one of many ways to actually get that done. Alongside a policy that lays out terms of safe harbor, for example, it's like if you're mm-hmm. if you identify an issue and you report it to us, don't worry, we're not going to treat you like a criminal. Um, we actually recognize that you're trying to help out because that's not there's 30 years of hostility towards hackers that needs to be kind of reversed in, in, in that particular area. So that's that's a VDP. Now, if you take that and then add rewards onto that as a way of recognizing people that find things for the first time, that's what most people refer to as a bug bounty program. Sure. So it's like, okay, the first to find each unique issue that comes in gets paid for it. And the more severe that issue is, the more we'll reward them with. And, you know, really the goal for that is to be able to direct how people spend their time. But it's also, you know, ultimately starting to build out an extension of your security team that just kind of floats around on the internet and has your back, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. That's a good description of it. Then there's the ability to do that privately, which is a lot of what we kind of pioneered as a leader in the category that we developed, where you're basically taking the same dynamics as a bug bounty program. But you're inviting people that have the right set of skills. If you're a financial services organization or if you're you know, federal government, for example, like you're looking for people that live in a particular region or have you know, clearances, have they've passed a background check, all those different things. And you're fundamentally accessing the same model, but you're doing it in a way that looks a lot more like a pen test. That's actually probably the largest part of what we do from a program volume standpoint. It's just not as noisy naturally as bug bounty and VDP. So we find we have to talk about it more. So to your question, I think... You know, literally every organization by default as a just baseline move needs to be putting out a, a vulnerability disclosure program and having a way to basically receive security feedback from the internet. To me at this point in time, for all sorts of different reasons, it's kind of table stakes with with, mm-hmm. with being on the internet. Um, I think now it's actually being seen as a proxy indicator of maturity uh, for organizations and something that you know, you're kind of conspicuous if you don't have, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I'd go beyond that. You know, if you think about places that are trying to rate the security of a third party using just open source Intel right now, the the data points that are available are just awful. You know, I mean, you just talked about cipher strength for a bit. You wouldn't even been talking about that if it wasn't for security ratings, because yeah, we know what it means. And if anything, a, a customer assessing a vendor, if if they allow weak ciphers, the assessor should be the one that's embarrassed because if they're willing to negotiate that on the client side, then they're the ones with the problem. You know, yeah. And either way, there's just no threat intel on that being in the kill chain of, of a real incident. Yeah, I mean, if you happen to have an adversary who has invested heavily in quantum and happens to be deploying it against you know, <laughs> your organization or its users, then yeah. maybe you've got a problem, but you're probably going to know you're on that threat radar. Um, and yeah. you're probably not going to be listening to this particular part of the chat that we're having right now anyway, because <laughs> it's out of scope, right? So it does exist as a risk, but like, it's not one that is relevant to most people. Right, and when that's more commonly available, then yeah, then we'll be in a different world. Yeah. You know, part of this consulting stuff I'm putting together was about like, well, what are the things a company needs? And there's a charter and governance and the risk register and then policies, and it's cranked out a whole bunch of policies. I, and straight away in there, I did the VDP. Because similar to what you're saying, it's like, you know what, companies should have that right out of the gate. And yep. I should mention, you know, even when I put my domain up, adversarial.com, 
I just thought, well, I'm a security person. I, I can't look really ridiculous, even though I have one and a half employees and one of those is me. <laughs> but I should go ahead and first things first, like maybe SPF, maybe put a DMARC record, and then security.txt, right? That's the thing, yep. right? Stroke yep. security.txt, every, just like robots.txt. So threw one in there. And then in there, you could put a reference to your VDP, which I did. Yep. And so there's one up at adversarial.com stroke VDP. I'm mentioning that because it's going to frame a question. I struggled for a long time with the safe harbor side of the VDP. Yeah. And I think <laughs> someone on the enterprise side, that is pretty common. And I should note in there that I worked a lot with BugCrowd and with HackerOne. There's a few other big competitors and a long tail of smaller competitive platforms as well. But one thing I noticed early on, and I've met, shared this and some of my peers agreed, was that you use the term researchers and HackerOne uses the term hackers. And if there's ever a dispute, and there aren't disputes very often, and if there are, they're, they're less than what you'd get with a pen test, actually. But if there's ever a dispute, I felt like bug crowd was more likely to take the side of the enterprise, whereas hacker one was more likely to err in favor of the hacker. You think that's true? On the hacker researcher thing, by default, I'll try to say hacker, partly because of background and you know just hacker pride frankly, there's personal reasons behind that. But yeah. also, you know, from my perspective, hacking itself is actually morally agnostic. We're basically kind of moving it, you know, really a lot of what we spent, this is actually another reason why I started BugCrowd was to keep my buddies out of jail and actually try to free them from some of the chilling effects on, on security research that's actually done in good faith and to help the mm -hmm. internet, right? Because that's been really difficult for a really long time. And I do feel like a lot of that's actually, you know, changed or is starting to change at the very least. So I'll use hacker kind of somewhat provocatively to tweak that assumption that people have and say, no, I'm actually talking about the good kinds, like the locksmiths, not the burglars. Because yeah. if there's an opportunity to introduce that concept, it's a, it's a thing I like to do. That said, you know, there's certain rooms that I'll walk into where that's just going to freak people out. And, 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 you know, the conversation might even end there, right? Yeah. Like that is, <laughs> that is still a thing. Plus, you'll be wearing your hacker hoodie at the same time, which doesn't help things at all. This is going to be audio so people can't see it, but behind me, I've got a bunch of DEF CON paraphernalia and, and a flag and all these different things because I'm proud of my community. I just, mm -hmm. I love it, right? So that's there. But I've also got a green screen behind me and I know if I'm, if I, if the, there's a call that I'm joining where I know that the stuff that's on the wall is going to spook people a little bit, I'll put that screen up just to decrease the friction in that conversation, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's kind of the main point of that's that. Funny. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. But in terms of favoring the researcher versus favoring the the organization, you know, I won't speak to our, our competitor on that one because they, they can answer that for themselves. But I think sure. the approach that we've always tried to take is to make it fair for both sides, right? Like when, when you think about what's going on, you've got hunters that are out there on the internet. They don't have access to a legal team. They don't have access to, to marketing budgets and all of the different resources the organizations they're trying to help do, right? So they're at a natural disadvantage. But on the flip side, you know, the organizations, like they're not just at the behest of what some random person on the internet tells them is most important for them that day, right? So there's there's yeah, these sort of right, two, right. two, there's these two extremes that you've got to find a midpoint on and to toe that line. And to me, that's, you know, that's the hard part of really what we all do. But, you know, also to me, like if you get that right, that's actually the thing that's really valuable going forward. Yeah. So I like to think that we've tried to develop a reputation around doing that well on both sides, not just the uh, not just the customer side. Sure. Yeah, so, so to that point, this, the struggle I had with Safe Harbor was kind of, I mean, the idea there, right, is to say, if you're conducting ethical research, then we're not going to 
prosecute straight away. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't say straight away. We're not going to prosecute as long as you're conducting ethical research. And those bounds are pretty strict. But the problem, of course, was that, I mean, in a bug bounty program, you, you kind of have that baked into the, the contractual wording on both sides of it, I'd say. So it's more about when people just stumble across things and you want to make sure they favor telling you about it instead of hiding it. And so you yeah. want to give them that safe harbor. It's carrot more than stick, I think, on that side. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and I struggled a bit because when, when writing, you know, legal language, and especially some that will be on a public-facing web page, you really have to have buy-in from you know, general counsel and onward, and it's just they don't want to invest the, the cycles. Which is usually the hard part. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, the other challenge with that is that when lawyers get nervous, they tend to get kind of verbose. So, so oh, you end up with a yeah. policy that's like twelve pages long, and no one has a hope of understanding it. So right. that's the other challenge. Yes, that's not helpful. Well, so so what I ended up going toward, and I th think I copied this off somebody else, but so there was a Department of Justice, basically a, a letter, guidance, I forget exactly how it was phrased, a press release is what it was, Yep, which was a really watershed moment in the hacker community, wasn't it? That said, yeah, was, well, I'll let you recap it, and then I'll talk about how it might apply to Safe Harbor. Yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, so in my intro, I talked about like founder, JSCTO, Bug Crowd, also the co-founder of the Disclose.io project. What Disclose.io is, is really mostly focused around standardizing this language to address the exact problems that you're talking about. So this whole idea of like, lawyers don't really understand this, you know, unless they're deep in it. Um, most, most legal teams, it's not their fault. Like this is not because they're bad at their job. They're just not thinking about it or they're usually thinking about it for the first time. So like, how do you decrease the friction involved in doing it well at the same time as you're, you know, creating bilateral safe harbor for everyone who's involved. So for the companies, they don't feel like they're, you know, inviting the bad guys in, so to speak, because that's that's a common objection or a common concern that people right. have. And on the researcher's side, you know, you want to actually encourage them to participate without feeling like they might get their door kicked in. So like, how do you land all of that? And on top of that, how do you write that in language that's easy enough for someone whose English is a second language to understand? Um, you know, with, with no legal background, right? So sure. as a design problem, it's really difficult and actually kind of fun. Like I, I find these kind of impossible challenges compelling because I'm a weirdo like that. But <laughs> yeah, what we ended up doing, we're actually a part of, of what the DOJ ended up putting forward in, in the document you're referring to. Amit Elzari out of, out of Berkeley, UC, did some work around it. Um, we took some of what Bugcrowd had done as well. Amazon participated, DHS, DOD, all of these different folks that have worked on this exact same problem basically all started contributing to a central boilerplate that we felt kind of covered off the main things that needed to be covered off. And that's that's up at Disclose.io. Now it includes stuff like, you know, security.txt. Um, there's a standard that we're working on at this point. This is all like not-for-profit open source type stuff. It's kind of a, a spare time project, but it, it does but in quite nicely with what I also do at Bugcrowd. You know, DNS security TXT, where you're not needing to put stuff into a into a web route, you can actually put it into your DNS zone file mm. and, and that becomes more authoritative and and you know ostensibly easier to find for security researchers that are looking for that type of thing. So the whole you know, the whole idea of it is like even if an organization isn't a bug crowd customer, like to me that doesn't really matter when it comes to the fact that I still believe they should be doing this and trying to trying to do it well. And, you know, if, if they want help with running the program, BugCrowd will gladly put our hand up and, and, and facilitate that. But, you know, even if that's not what's happening, like, let's just get this done anyway, because it needs to be standardized across the internet. That's awesome. I just checked out Disclose.io and I can already, it just made me feel like, wow, uh, this is all done already. I've been wasting time. <laughs> no, not, not, not at all. I mean, honestly, it needs to be, we need to talk about it more because this has been going on for 10 years. Like the, the charging rule changes that came out of 
the Department of Justice at the beginning of this year where they basically inverted the CFAA and said, you need to prove that it's in bad faith before we'll accept yeah. a, a, a 1033 docket. Like that's a proposal that we put into DOJ and the uh, the Senate Justice Committee at the end of 2019. And that was the product of work that started in 2015, right? So it's been a Amazing. long road and there's still a long way to go. But yeah, like people knowing about it and adopting it, I think that's the most important thing. Um, people I've talked to, they're working on a VDP. Oh, and, and so I should say, in my VDP, after that ruling came out, and I didn't have a safe harbor before then. I wasn't super comfortable with the language. And then yeah. when the Department of Justice ruling came out, I just full stop cited the whole damn thing. I just actually have the, the, the paragraph that says good faith security research means dot, dot, dot. Yep. Because that would be the whole idea is that, look, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Yeah, the yeah exactly. This. Exactly. And really what you're doing with it, with with a, you know, quote unquote safe harbor clause is defining what constitutes good faith. Like what does good faith actually look like? The challenge with that is that if you're being, if you're on the receiving end of security testing, it doesn't look that different from actually getting hacked. Mm-hmm. So, okay, cool. Given the fact that that's difficult technically, how do you define what's okay and what's not? for people that are actually following that to, to adhere to so that you can like look at them and say, okay, you're not a bad guy. Um, this is cool. And then, you know, it's a, if this, then that, if, if they've followed that and stayed within those parameters, one of which going back to the Uber thing is like, don't exfiltrate 57 million records. That's right. not, that's not finding a vulnerability. That's stealing stuff. It's yeah. very different. Um, if they've followed that, then that activity is authorized with respect to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's basically exempted with respect to the DMCA. It's exempted with respect to acceptable use in terms of service. And it's generally seen as being done in good faith. So at that point in time, the researcher, this it's actually kind of more difficult to prosecute them at that point. Unless they go off and steal a whole bunch of stuff, right? Then all right. of a sudden you can say, well, hang on, that's not in good faith. Like all of those exemptions go out the window because you're clearly doing something criminal at this point. So we can you know, jump straight back into that mode. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we're describing is just, it, it has nothing to do with whether you decide to avail yourself of it. This is just, it's not quite law, but it's it's citable yeah, guidance out of the Department of Justice for that very purpose. Right? Yeah, I think, the, I think the idea of that is to is to have enough folk basically build it from a precedent standpoint. You know, there's enough people using this, like, you know, AWS uses this this term, like these these terms were actually used and, and put out there by CISA DHS as um, guidance for election right. security in 2020, for example. Like, it's, it's all over the place. So the idea of it appearing in enough places and there being enough confidence in the fact that, like, oh, if Amazon use it, then it's probably fine for me as well. Yeah. Um, that's a good start. Yeah. Wait, now, I, I have to flag, I've had people I've recommended bounty programs to that said, uh, you know, after a while, we're working on it, working on it. And then, oh, well, we almost have our VDP done. And so we're going to have that. And I think they're very different, right? To me, the VDP says, if you find something, here's how to tell us and here's some encouragement to do that. Whereas the bounty program says, please go find stuff. Yeah. R- right. It's an RFP almost. <laughs> it just blasts out. Totally agree. One's, one's reactive and the other's proactive is, is how I often frame it. So you're not going to get that initial wave of, of security debt exposure just by, by publishing a VDP. There does still tend to be a bit of a bump if you promote a VDP. Like you can, you can do it fairly quietly in a way that people just don't notice uh, and, and mm-hmm. it kind of goes from there. But if you, if you make a big to-do about it or whatever else, you generally will f- find a bunch of issues that you didn't know about before. 
just because you've got people that are altruists or they're puzzlers in terms of their hacker persona, they just they just love finding bugs and stuff, and they'll they'll come and have a look and tell you what they find. So, yeah, there's a little bit of that that still happens. But to your point, it is far less than than when you're proactively incentivizing it and, and actually offering a reward. Yeah, I teach a class at Georgia Tech. It's uh, enterprise cybersecurity management. I just made it up, so it, God knows what's in there. <laughs> but there is a bit of a bounty talk. And, you know, in there, I, I at different times in the past, I actually had um, bounty researchers, bounty hackers in, in the class as well. So as I go through that, I you know, try to explain to people how you're going to get high fidelity risks out of this and how it's something that you, you really need to get in. But I still think that for small companies, especially, um, they're not going to be promoted when they put a VDP out. Right? They're not going to put a press release out. Amazon would, but it only makes sense. There's a PR sure. element that outweighs. I mean, they already have people trying to attack them anyway, so it's not like they're going to antagonize. But for a small company, they just see that as, we're going to antagonize if we do that. So I, I assume that that's probably not going to generate much of a interest if, if a small company quietly publishes stroke VDP. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it, it's, not, it's not a replacement. I, I think that's kind of what you're getting at there. Um, the, the, reason, the reason that I harp on about VDP is that, you know, I, I do firmly believe that, that a vulnerable disclosure program is something that everyone should do full stop. I don't necessarily think that a public bug bounty program is something that every organization you know, necessarily should do because some aren't mature enough to be able to actually deal with all the information they get back from it, right? So you yeah. end up in a position where you've got, um, I think Katie Mazuris refers to this as bug indigestion. Um, <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that is possible, yeah. especially with a public program because at that point you've engaged the entire internet mm-hmm. to say, hey, come look at my stuff and if you find something, I'll pay you. So the, fa- oh, the, fallback, posi- the, fa- yeah, the fallback position there is to have a VDP as a reactive catch-all, and then to run that same model but privately, so you're able to actually throttle, you know, the amount of information that you're getting in. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I had never thought about that because I was always exposed to private programs and and that throttle us. You say you put a budget, don't you? You say, yeah, once it gets to this, put a pause on it automatically. So it's the first yeah. time you ever done this, and you get up to the budget, it pauses it, and you're like, whoa, okay. And you found some themes already, so you can get to work before you take the pause off of it, and you could probably yeah. proactively fix things. But I never thought about that. If it's a public program, how the hell are you going to pause it? Well, you might stop paying. <laughs> People are still going to keep poking. I know I'm selling against myself a little bit here, but it is, you know, we, we do have people come to us, um, and I know this is like the same thing's true for others that, that are kind of in our category now. They'll come in and say, oh, I want to launch a bug bounty program next week because I've got a product launch or, I've, you know, there's, there's some kind of compelling business reason for the timing. And basically what we'll almost always say is no you don't you don't want to do that unless you've been working up to that point and you've got a, a clear understanding of your overall risk posture as viewed by the outside world and you've got the ability to like sustainably intake that information and work out what your remediation or mitigation strategy is unless you've got those things ticked off you're probably not ready to go out and say hey everyone come hack us and we'll pay you and yeah. that's fine that's that's not a bad thing like if if that's where you want to go like let's have a conversation about how you build maturity up towards the point that you can do that but if you're just sort of walking in you know the first conversation you've ever had about getting researcher input is we want to start a public bug bounty program then you're probably doing it a bit wrong <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah without a yeah. doubt So talking about scopes a little bit, I, and you know, it's funny about the VDP thing, because like I said, I, I wrote one all up, and then I say, oh, you have a tool that's been generating them. I can't wait to gap analyze that now, and it might be a whole new conversation just to I'd this. be really interested to hear what you find. 
uh, as you do that. Yeah, because sure. like anything, there'll be somewhere I'm like, oh man, I didn't think about that. And there'll be somewhere I think that's awful. I would never do, and it won't be bad writing type stuff, but rather like strategically, I won't agree with, I, I bet. So I, I'll get back to you on that. On the actual scope though, once I, I retired and, and went on my own freelance, so to speak, I could I could do what I want here, right? So I'm not writing anything for my former employer and I don't have any bounds here. I'm writing something that I might suggest to people. And so I just kind of started from scratch and what would I want to build knowing what I know. Mm. And so I said, like when it comes to data and for anybody who's new to bounty programs, the general idea is you say, if you figure out you might be able to steal data, pause and let us know and we'll figure it out. And if yep. it's true, we're going to reward you for all of that. But please do not exfil 57 million records. That's yeah. completely unacceptable. That's that's clearly, you've clearly gone beyond the, the definition of a proof concept yeah. at that point. Yeah. And, and, but what I landed on as I wrote some from scratch was, and this is pretty technical nerdy language, but you know, it's appropriate for the audience is if you find a table that you think contains sensitive data, select, and, and I forget, I actually worded it up something like, you know, 10% or 10 records, whichever is less. Now that's a little, I, lawyers, if they understood what I was talking about, they might be a little bit worried about that. I'm saying you can get 10 people's data, but not 50 million because being on the other side and triaging, in 10 records, I'm, I know 100% if this is the real deal or not. Yeah. Is that common or dangerous or bad idea? I actually think that's where this is going to end up going, even in terms of some of the stuff that will get you know, ratified by DOJ at some point in the future. Like, There's conversations around it happening. I, don't, I know it's not far along, so I don't expect that to happen anytime soon. But kind of the problem that you're calling out there is one that I get on a soapbox about a lot. You know, to, to people inside security and, and to people that handle vulnerabilities and, and, you know, exploits and proofs of concept all the time. Um, the difference between, you know, an exfil attempt and, and a POC is, is obvious, right? But most people aren't us. So, so if, if you're a lawyer looking at that on the outside where, you know, you've, you've got a, a prosecutor trying to argue that 10 records is a breach, well, okay, well, where did you draw the line? Right. Yeah. It's it's one of these things where I think it's it's intuitive to people that are inside the tent and and completely abstract to, to folk that are outside. And and to me, you know, that becomes an opportunity for standardization and definition. Yeah. And so what you're talking about putting together, you know, in terms of like, yeah, here's the thing, like get ten records or less than ten percent of of the data assets available in, in that particular target. Mm-hmm. To me, that seems like one of the many ways that you could approach it, probably the bigger point is that you've actually been clear about it. Yeah, that's right. right? And, but, but, yeah, and where the hair is on it, and, and yeah, I looked it up, it is exactly what I thought it, and it says, you know, where you think it's possible, or it says you can't do any, that's prohibited with the following exception, where it's suspected, retrieve 10% or 10 rows to evaluate the content. Uh, you know, as a, as a hacker or a researcher, this is kind of extending safe harbor a touch to me, so that's nice. I, and you kind of almost have to do that to really know what database you're in or you're going to constantly get told oh yeah. well that was a null database that was just a test one and and yep. there are unethical people who will say that and try to get out of paying bounties sometimes unfortunately kind of ruins it for everyone but what's interesting about this is that i can say it's okay to take 10 rows because there's 100 million records in there and, and they're random you don't know what their order is and all of that so it's not targeted and i can be comfortable and i can kind of absolve you of your guilt but if you have the ftc on your back then they may have a totally unique ter- interpretation of this. Yeah, well, and this this is where the fact that the CFAA has a has a criminal and a civil component to it comes into play. So, if you're an organization basically authorizing this kind of activity, 
you know, against the CFAA here in North America, that's great on the civil side. But if the DOJ, for whatever reason, decides to make it their problem, um, you know, the rules that you put in place basically don't, you know, I think this has actually never happened in practice. Um, and and to, to be clear on it, most of the effect of, of, of CFAA on good faith security research is actually in the chilling effect, not so much in things yeah. actually going to court yeah. and, and getting getting prosecuted, right? But theoretically, you know, th- there could be a criminal case brought um, even if if the civil side of it was like, no, that's fine. They were doing exactly what I asked them to and I'm okay with this. So yeah. there's there's ambiguity all through the law. This This ultimately comes back to the fact that like these laws were written... You know, CFAA was the product of literally Ronald Reagan watching war games and freaking out and then and then spending a bunch of time with the DOJ and, and the CFAA was actually the output of, of that uh-huh. interaction. At the time, it was actually not not a bad law given where you know, communication sure. systems were up to, but a lot of times passed <laughs> since then. Well, let me ask you this, because you know, what I just said, I've witnessed that in the past where people say, well, if a bounty researcher does this, then it's like a breach with regard to maybe regulatory notification, maybe customer contracts, right? You know, the whole third-party risk management game right now where every small company is pregnant with these awful lopsided contractual clauses foisted on them by someone with leverage. They're just ridiculous from right to audit to you're not allowed to do anything. You have to tell us if, if, if anything happens whatsoever. Mm. So that said, though, People are generally comfortable if they hire a red team or a big yeah. four. Let's go big four. Let's go, let's take it to the extreme on the comfort level. So a big four firm comes in, they have a pen tester, they have a red team, and they say, hey, we can get to your, your sensitive data. Look, we, we downloaded 10 rows or maybe even 1,000 rows. Don't worry. And, and they just tell them, don't worry. We looked at it. We saw what it was. So we deleted it as per our standard operating procedures. And I think they wouldn't even ask twice. They would assume that in the contractual clause, it says that you, sh- you shouldn't get anything. And if you do, you will right away delete it, all of that. What's any different from that from a bounty? And can you get the same level of assurance? Uh, in a private program? Yes, yeah. you can. Um, and and that, that was, you know, as I said, coming into this out of, out of pen testing and recognizing the fact that we'd need to do that and actually probably go above and beyond in convincing people that that was even possible in the in the first place, yeah. right? Because it, it it from the outside in looks inherently like a, a more kind of chaotic, you know, less controllable model. Um, whereas in practice, that's not actually true. Like we've got a ton of data on on you know the different researchers on the platform, like what kind of skills they have, but then also what their track record is. You know, some of the stuff that I mentioned before mm-hmm. around like geo background checking, all these different things. We're assessing pro- for professionalism as a part of that as well. So, you know, when there's, I mean, the reason I call that out is that, you know, if you're in a position where you can widen the aperture and not care as much about those sorts of things, because you don't have, you know, PHI, for example, or you don't have things mm-hmm. that would, would fall under a breach disclosure notification act then you're going to get more eyes on target, you're going to get greater diversity, and ostensibly you'll get more results from doing that. But not everyone's in that position, right? So we'll tighten that aperture up, you know, depending on depending on the requirement um, to the point where, you know, we've done source code reviews for, for compartmentalized environments for the Air Force, for example. Like the the, the kind of hoops that you got to jump through to do that even as a consultancy are pretty insane. And through the crowd. And, and, to be and we're able to crowdsource it, yeah, because yeah. of how we how we approach this, this particular problem. So it's possible. I think to your question around how how you deal with, you know, what if something gets discovered that, that you know, technically should be notifiable. It's literally in the same way 
as you would if you were hiring a third-party contractor, big four, you know, whatever else. There's there's almost always exemptions and, and things that can be put in place. You know, HIPAA is the one that I've got top of mind right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the same for all sorts of other things. You can apply that same model in a crowdsource context uh, for the invitees to that program. Now, where I'll caveat that is that this probably doesn't work if you're going out to the open internet. So sure. if you're talking about a, a public bug bounty program where it's like literally we don't know where this is going to come from, but we, f- we feel like we're mature enough to handle that. When it comes to these sorts of questions, it has to be handled more at the brief and the policy layer, not so much in terms of who you're inviting because you don't really have control over that part. Yeah, sure. Sure. No, that, that certainly makes sense. Thank you so much. I mean, I learned a lot of what I know about bounties through you and, and not just through speaking with you, but through working with you and seeing the, the fruit of your labor there. So, so thanks for putting Appreciate all that. this together. It's really been helpful to the whole industry, I'd say. Before we part, though, you know, I'm curious, future of bounties, and, and you know, I, I've hit you with a few of these annoying ideas before, but you're coming <laughs> from a, an exchange and, and high-frequency trading and, and arbitrage and, and so on, and at the same time, spending the majority of my time with well, ha- hackers on staff that are finding things, I can't help but to think, wow, there's going to be companies spun up to just crank bounties and, and, and you know, <laughs> and just abuse the system and well, not even abuse it, but just automate. Do you see a lot of success when, when hackers try to automate and make harnesses and then the minute a log for j comes out, boom, they hit a thousand targets. Is, is that a thing? And you think there'll be more of that in the future or will we kind of be a um, mutually assured destruction? <laughs> No, I think it's been a thing the whole time. Uh, you know, like I, I would argue that the asset, mm-hmm. like the attack surface management space, asset discovery, uh, yeah. when it comes to cloud, like I watched that that evolve into an industry, and it came from the bounty community. Um, you know, what I what I mentioned before around the incentive structure, like the first person to find each unique issue is the one who gets paid. What the smart hunters did was to look for places where other people might not think to look Mm -hmm. um it it drove them to the kind of the known edges of the organizations that they were hunting against and lo and behold they figured out that like no one knows where their stuff is on the internet yes so so all of a sudden they're building out tool chains and workflows like i had a i had a guy uh jason haddix um working for me at bug crowd at the time who was one of the leaders in in techniques and, and education around that and eventually it spawned automation and eventually that automation spawned companies and platforms that you know, most of your audience would probably be at least looking at if not using today. So that's an example of like, oh yeah, like a whole bunch of creative people figured out that there's a systemic issue that was out there on the internet already. Like that was a known thing that was true, right? But they they basically kind of called out how bad it was from an impact standpoint and and drove the creation of automation in behind them uh, to to make you know solving that problem more repeatable going forward. That happened over the span of probably three or four years. I think is is kind of what I saw. Um, to me, that's a good thing because you know what's happening now is that hunters are moving on to new stuff. Like they're they're they're, they're looking at like open source, for example. Like that's been that's been a, a trash fire for a long time from a security standpoint. But all of a sudden, the internet's collectively realizing that. Um, and, and you're seeing, you know, automation and test harnessing and different approaches being applied to source code review when it comes to FOSS and then applying that to hunting in dynamic targets in, in a bug bounty context. Like that'll eventually evolve from my perspective into an industry and then they'll just do it again. Just like a tax service management did. Yeah, because yeah. you think about it, like technology is always evolving. The adversary is always evolving. You know, you, you kind of touched on this really briefly earlier on around 
I don't think automation is the enemy, um, but I also believe that automation, even with ML and AI applied to it, can only do what it's been told to do, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the minute we get good at something like that, it's the job of the bad guy to figure out ways around that. And they're going to constantly innovate and apply their creativity yeah. to it, which is the entire reason we exist as an industry in the first place. And therefore, therefore <laughs> the role of human creativity to feed into that gap with the bad stuff happens, that's going to, that's going to be a need in perpetuity sure. from, from my perspective. So. Yeah, that's why I call it adversarial risk management. The whole point yeah. is that's what differentiates it from operational risk management and that sort of thing. Yeah. So to, yeah. to, to that point, I mean, I know we built, we would build harnesses because not only would you be able to take something that comes in and then replay that against your whole infrastructure and maybe save a buck on paying these bounties, but that was just nothing. The main thing was pointing it internally, right? Because if somebody's popping something on the outside, God knows how much stuff you have on the inside, wouldn't yeah. it be great? So we would build those harnesses and replay the the exploits that we would see coming in from the research community. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's I think that's fantastic. I think that's important, and and you know, researchers do do that. They'll they'll recognize that a particular set of techniques that they've got are, are unusually successful and and can be automated, and they'll go off and do that. Yeah, and and they'll they'll you know collect and educate and and, and do all that sort of thing. And when it comes time to to share that information they'll usually do it or they'll spin up a company and, and try to sell it as a platform you know right. there's also it's it's kind of entrepreneurship that's going on in the research community as well which is which is kind of an underrated aspect of this but yeah to me it's because i mean like we're not you know as i said FOSS is this thing that we just haven't really figured out how to you know how to address like SBOM management, like risk scoring of libraries, of, of third, fourth, fifth party dependencies, all those different things. We don't really know how to do that yet as an internet. Like we haven't even looked at um, you know, machine learning, for example, like how 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 is um, you know, taint and and mm -hmm. manipulation of, of ML models. The idea of proactively attacking that as an adversary, we haven't seen wholesale examples of that impacting the average person, but you can pretty much guarantee that is going to be a thing at some point oh, in the sure. future. So at that point in time, security research is going to be really important to get ahead of that and try to try to avoid it. And it's just, it's you know, to me, there's never going to not be a thing to break into and, and cause a trash fire around next, which means that, uh, you know, this cycle will go on. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, well, we could go on for about this forever, but next time we do, sure we'll, we uh, we'll grab a couple beers. <laughs> so thanks a ton for joining me, Casey. And um, please stay in touch. And thanks again for all the great work that you're doing in this space. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate it. One, two, three, four. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the content and are looking forward to the next one. Thanks for tuning in. And certainly share your feedback and ideas for future episodes.